Okay, we're done. Right? No, just kidding. Our gospel text uh, this morning comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 5 through 13. If you're able, you can stand for the reading of the word of the Lord. Luke chapter 11, 5 through 13. If you want to grab a Bible, you can go there. Let me read it for us. He also said to them, Imagine that one of you has a friend, and you go to that friend in the middle of the night. Imagine saying, friend, loan me three loaves of bread because a friend of mine on a journey has arrived, and I have nothing to set before him. Imagine further that he answers from within the house, don't bother me. The door's already locked, and my children and I are in bed. I can't get up to give you anything. I assure you, even if he wouldn't get up and help you because of his friendship, he will get up and give his friend whatever he needs because of his friend's brashness. And I tell you, ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be open to you. Everyone who asks receives. Whoever seeks finds. To, whoever, to everyone who knocks, the door is opened. For which father among you would give a snake to your child if the child asked for a fish? And if a child asked for an egg, what father would give the child a scorpion? If you who are evil know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will the heavenly Father give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? The word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may take a seat. It's great to be with you this morning. If you don't know me, I'm Pastor Danny. I serve here doing local mission on our pastoral staff. And uh, very happy to open God's word with you this morning. Uh, Scott is somewhere in Europe traveling around, enjoying the sights. Uh, so you have me this morning. But uh, as some of you know, we've shared a little bit about our journey. We pastored a church uh, in our mid-20s in Germany. Now I've entered late 20s. I'm 28. But in our church in Germany, uh, I have a very good friend, and I will call him Tom. And Tom is one of the most persistent, shameless people I've ever met, especially as a friend. Whenever I would arrive at church, and his apartment was right across the street, he would see me from the window, and he would just come out running toward me. And he'd jump into my arms and give me a big hug. And there was always the persistent question when he came running and jumped into my arms and gave me a hug. He said, when are we meeting this week? When are we going to hang out? And then whenever we would hang out, usually on a Tuesday at a coffee shop or we'd go get an ice cream or we would go play some basketball, which he would always win, five minutes into the meeting, he would say, this is great, but when are we going to meet next week? Since I've moved back to the States, he calls me weekly, if not daily. And you know, his Facebook Messenger call will come in the middle of us hanging out or when I'm in a meeting. But always in my Facebook Messenger, I find a series of texts from him. Hey, let's call soon. Hey, when, just so you know, when something's going on, I'm here. When can we talk again? Are you okay? Are you sick? I had a dream you're sick. <laughs> I miss you, brother. And that usually comes all in about five minutes. Now, I try and tell him when I can answer and I try and stick to it, but I've also had to learn to silence my phone. And I have to be honest. Often I pick up because he is a good friend and I love him so much. He's very dear to me. But sometimes I pick up solely because of his persistence. Sometimes in the words of the text, I don't get up and answer the phone because he's my friend. I get up because he won't stop calling. 
Interestingly, Jesus in this short parable uses a similar sentiment in an ongoing question or an ongoing response to the disciples' question about how to pray. Preceding this text, we see in the Gospel of Luke, Jesus active in kingdom ministry. In Luke 4, Jesus comes onto the scene in his own village of Nazareth, and he proclaims that the Spirit of God is upon him, and he has a mission of liberation, of proclaiming the gospel, of healing the hurting, of comforting the sick and in pain, and that God has come as king in his ministry. And he begins to do all sorts of things. He's busy with healing and preaching and helping and building this new community. But at the center of that ministry, woven through the narrative up to this point, Jesus regularly takes time to pray. He regularly finds a lonely place. And he goes to be with the one he calls Father. At the heart of Jesus' ministry is not preaching. It is not healing, it's prayer. It's the source from which he lived the kingdom vocation that he had been given. And running through that narrative, we come to Luke 10, where Jesus comes to the house of Martha and Mary. And he comes in and Martha, as would likely be expected of a woman in the time, hurries to the kitchen and begins prepping a meal. She knows Jesus is this honored figure, a rabbi in her house, and she wants to honor him and serve him. And she comes in and she complains because Mary has not joined her. Mary, rather, sits at Jesus' feet, listening to him and speaking to him. And I think Luke has placed this in the middle of his gospel to symbolize that after all of this ministry, after all of the healing, after all of the work that Jesus is doing, the heart of discipleship and life in the kingdom is not all the doing. It's rather symbolized in Mary's quiet, humble time with Jesus, spent at God's feet. It's what Jesus calls the one thing needed, the better portion. And right after that picture, Luke places this section of text where Jesus is answering the question of how to pray. How do we live in that space where Mary was sitting? How do we pray? How do we enter into that secret life of the kingdom that we see in the life of Jesus? In my own experience, pastoring in a very secular post-Christian culture in Germany where many people don't go to church and where even many people don't really have a concept or a consciousness of of a transcendent realm. When I would pastor and meet with people who had come to faith in our church or had come from a nominal Christian background, the most difficult struggle, the the key question that we wrestled with was the same question that Jesus has asked here. How do I pray? How in the midst of the busyness of my Western life, how in the midst of all the things going on, how in the midst of this culture that teaches me I don't need God, how in the midst of all of this do I find a way in all of the imminence of life to commune with the transcendent God and to speak with him, to hear from him, and to listen to him? How do I pray when the words of the tradition that I was baptized into mean nothing to me? How do I pray? As a pastor, I went on a journey of trying to figure out how do I teach people to pray? Because I found that little else would matter in their life following Jesus, in their activity in the church, if that was not taught. 
I stumbled upon an Orthodox priest named Alexander Men who had ministered in the Soviet Union, had become a Christian in a very atheistic culture. And he had taken over a little parish and all of these young atheists or agnostic people living in the Soviet Union would find their way to the parish. And he writes about these times where so many young people would come in and ask him, how do I pray? My life feels empty. It's so imminent. There's nothing more. There's no meaning. How do I find something transcendent? And so eventually he took all of what he wrote and he actually wrote a manual of how to pray. The point is, is that even in the most secular culture that feels like it doesn't need God, our hearts as humans hunger for prayer. We hunger to know God, whether we know it or not. Do you know how to pray? Do you know how to find your way into the lonely place with God? Do you know how to enter that space from which Jesus in his perfection lived? How to make what we believe a lived experience. Jesus in his perfection still needed to live in a rhythm of prayer with the one he called Father. And the disciples seeing all the grace and all of the joy and all of the healing flowing out of his life, they realized all the times they would catch him in prayer that that was the space they needed to figure out if they wanted to live like him. And so comes the question of the text, how do we pray? And Jesus' initial answer is to tell them what to pray, to give them language. Father, uphold the holiness of your name. Bring in your kingdom. Give us the bread we need for today and forgive us our sins, for we also forgive everyone who has wronged us. And don't lead us into temptation. Not some mechanical form of words, not a mantra, but language that postures the disciples toward God, toward his relationship to them as a father, to his covenant love, to his holiness, to his grace to forgive sin and draw near to us in our brokenness. Prayer that postures the disciple toward the task of God's grace to then forgive others, to rest assured that God delivers us from trying and tempting situations. But then Jesus makes a move from what to pray to then how to pray. And more specifically, I would argue Jesus in this parable is trying to show his disciples that learning how to pray is rooted in who they believe they're praying to. And the first little picture handles the question of how. Jesus tells this interesting parable of three friends. One friend is home late at night and he receives an unexpected guest. And unexpected guests were a commonplace in the culture of Jesus' time. You didn't have phones and email to alert someone to your travels. And so it was quite often that a guest, a friend, a family member would show up unexpected. And so it was important in your house to have food, to have provision, to be ready to host. And that was something more significant than likely we realize. Because Jesus' time was not like our culture, which is typically understood as an innocence or guilt culture, where we're understood kind of with what's right and what's wrong and we want to obey rules. Rather, Jesus' culture would have functioned more along the lines of what some would call an honor-shame culture. Where the importance of what you do and how you live rests in relationships and your status in society. 
And so to not be ready for a guest, to not provide hospitality, to not be able to set a table before a traveling friend would dishonor you greatly and dishonor them as well. So like many other of the parables that Jesus tells, the problem is not just a lack of bread, but it's this friend's status that is at risk. His honor is on the line. And so he does something quite radical. He runs out his house house late at night and he goes to his friend's door and he begins rapping on the door saying, I need food, I need something from you. Get up, get up, get up. But Jesus says, this friend says, "Mm, no thanks, don't bother me. I'm already in bed, I already have my house settled, I had a long day, my kids are all sleeping, I don't want to get up and help you. But Jesus says he eventually gets up. Likely, how when my wife tells me to get up in the morning, I mumble no or I don't want to as I slip out of bed. Some people call me Grumpy Daniel in the morning. So this friend, as he's saying, don't bother me, gets up and goes to his door, likely so that he can preserve the status of his friend and also so that he can maybe build a little social capita so that when he's in need, his friend might come to his aid. So in this story, the friend does well to persist in prayer because he knows that if he knocks on the door long enough, if he asks long enough late at night in this crisis, the friend will get up and moved by his persistence will give him what he needs. Jesus moves from this image and says that we should pray in this way. Ask, seek, knock, run to the door of prayer to God and tell him the issue. Persist in your prayer and you will receive an answer. The Greek word for brashness here or in some translations persistence can actually be translated shamelessness. The kind of prayer that Jesus is telling the disciples will give them that entry point into the kingdom life is unedited shameless speech with God a vulnerable, messy kind of speech with God. The friend running to the door does not care what he looks like. He's yelling, he's knocking, he doesn't care who finds out about his issues. He needs something. And so Jesus says, we should pray as well. That likely as Jesus went into the lonely place in his own life, what he brought to his father were his unedited, messy, vulnerable prayers. Not reverent prayer, there's a place for reverent prayer, but vulnerability with God is how to pray. Are you vulnerable in your prayer? And I think Jesus uses this image specifically connected to requests, but I don't think he just means requests. I think he means an overall way of talking with God that does not edit out fear and anxiety and pain and need or joy, or hope. To be vulnerable with God is how to pray. Now, if Jesus stopped here, we might assume that we should practice this kind of prayer because God is grumpy, like the friend. 
And indeed, in Jesus' time, Jewish people, a great group of Jewish people had begun to feel that God was more and more distant. When you read the text that Jewish writers were writing during the time, you find all these kind of beings in between humanity and God, as if kind of God has moved farther away and we need to fill in the gap with angels or God's word or the patriarchs to connect us to God. There was this sense that God had become distant, that like the friend who is grumpy and won't get up, God is in heaven and we're not sure when he's going to do what he promised he would do. And so if we just yell loud enough, if we just pray long enough, if we just obey strictly enough, if we just muster enough faith, God will come down. Many of us, even in our prayer life today, for other reasons than the people and the Jews of Jesus' time, we ask and seek and knock because we think this is who God is grumpy and distant, and so we need to yell and yell and pray and pray, and maybe he will hear us. He's a God in many of our imaginations who fits much more with the philosophy of deism and consumerism than with the scriptures of Israel and the church. And this way of prayer enters into the church, and frankly, it creates a dryness in our prayer life that leads to us saying we believe certain things, but never having an experience of them. It leads to a cognitive form of Christianity where we don't really think God is listening and so we go through the motions. Because this view of God infects us and why would we wanna pray affectionately with that God? And so we settle for a certain kind of persistence. One of the things that I've noticed in my first seven or eight years of ministry is that if you want to know someone's theology, listen to them pray. You can tell me all sorts of things about who God is and why he's great, but if your prayer lacks affection and joy and vulnerability and it's merely a monotone list of requests given to God, then it is likely that the God revealed in Christ is not influencing your prayer. But this is not where Jesus ends his teaching. He shifts again. First he shifted from what to how, and now from how to whom, whom to pray to. And he shifts out of uh, this kind of friendship, honor, shame, culture kind of relationship of obligation to the relationship of parent and child. A relationship guided not by social capita, the child can't give anything back to the parent that will exceed or match what they give them. It's a relationship guided by the love and desire to care and nurture someone who belongs to you. That in this relationship, Jesus gives us this image. If a child comes to the parent asking for food, the parent will not, and Jesus is being a little hyperbolic here, but the, the parent's not gonna respond by giving them a dangerous animal. They don't want to hurt the child. Satisfying the child's needs doesn't necessarily win the parent something in culture or in their life, but providing and caring for the child is something primal, something that is deep in their identity as a parent. And Jesus says that even if broken people like us act like parents in this way, then God who is better than us and whose main identity is one of parent, here expressed as father, how much more will he care for us? 
and not just answer our prayers, but draw near through his Holy Spirit in our pain and vulnerability and sorrow. Jesus has been arguing here in his parables like he does in other places in a way that's typical of Jewish rabbis, using a strategy called a kalva homer, an argument from lesser to greater. It works kind of like this. If someone or something that is not that good produces a good result, then won't something better also produce the same, if not a better result? So a modern sports example, if the Mariners, after 20 long, painful years, look as if they might make the playoffs, then won't your team who made the playoffs last year and won a bunch of games and don't make you question your sanity or your loyalty to your home city, won't they also make the playoffs? Perhaps if Jesus just gave us these parables very straightforward, he would have put it like this in response to the disciples' prayer. If a friend who's a bit grumpy and merely concerned with honor will get up and answer your persistent request, won't God, my father, your father also do the same? Won't he even more open himself up to hear your mess? Your messy, shameless prayers. So how do you pray, disciples? Shamelessly. Without editing it. Because he already sees it. And if you, a broken person, often controlled by selfish desire and your desire to look good, if you care for your child, won't God... The Father, the one who sent me, who's at work in me, who wants to give you his spirit to share his presence, won't he respond to your prayer? So how do you pray, disciples? Knowing that God's fatherhood is defined by his desire to be present in your life. To be near, not far. I'd like to think that my friends Tom's persistence in our relationship had a similar source. There was one Sunday early on in his time in the church where he came running across the street, as he did, jumped into my arms, gave me a big hug. But this time he asked me a different question than the typical persistent question of when are we meeting. He looked me in the eye and he said, Danny, am I your brother? And I like to think I'm a bit of a contemplative in my spirituality, but I had a very mystical moment where I had the sense that whatever answer I gave to Tom in that moment was the answer I was giving to Jesus. And that if I said no, it was also a no to Jesus. It was an odd, strange, refreshing moment long into my life with Jesus to feel like Jesus was asking me that in Tom's eyes. And of course I said, yes. And from that moment on, our relationship shifted in what he spoke to me and what he said to me, the things he was willing to share with me, because I'm convinced that he was shameless in our conversation because he trusted who I am, or even better, whether he knew it or not, he trusted who was in me. Shameless, vulnerable, unedited prayer is an expression of trust toward God's intentions toward us. Shameless, unedited prayer is an expression of true theology that says God is ultimately good and wants our good as well. 
If your picture of God is grumpy and distant, and Blaise Pascal once said that God created humanity in his image and we often return the favor. But if you come to believe the lie that God is lazy, bitter, grumpy, distant, contract oriented, you do for me, I'll do for you, then your prayer might become a persistent kind of prayer, but it will not be the kind of prayer that leads to the love and the grace and the joy that flowed out of the life of Jesus. Jesus is saying to his disciples, if you want to enter into my life, then you need to pray. But if you want to pray, you need to know that shameless, vulnerable, persistent prayer to the gracious Father is the entry point. An entry point that we never graduate from. Friendship with the Father is the heart of the new creation. It's the source of the kingdom. And when you discover God in this way, a whole new life opens up. I have found in my life that the more I believe that God is truly like Jesus, that the Father is like the Son, the more I find myself praying in a way that is full of groaning and unedited weird prayers, prayers that I am okay with God now hearing, probably not most of you. And Paul says in Romans, even when we groan, even when we just vulnerably just groan before God, the Spirit turns that into words before the Father. I found that the more I trust that kind of prayer, the more I believe that that is really the entry point to kingdom life. I don't just notice the kingdom growing in me, but I say this with humility, I see more and more of the fruit of the kingdom coming out of me. And you, like me, are a disciple of Jesus. And the goal of your life should be that the same grace and joy that was in Christ by nature would come out of you through grace. So when you pray, who are you praying to? Who do you imagine is listening? And might the God that we are formed to believe in, who is distant, the God who has frankly nothing to do with the God of the Bible. Might he be keeping you out of the very place that Jesus came to give, the very thing that we receive in salvation, the way into the mystery of knowing God in our day-to-day -day life. Because church, if we are kept out of that space, we have nothing to give the world that someone else can't give. But church, if we find our way and continue to abide in that place, who might we become to our neighbor, our city? My passion is mission and getting out and doing justice and preaching the gospel and bringing in the excluded and doing all of that stuff. But I have found that there is no energy and power unless it flows out of the same place where Jesus found it. Friendship with the Father. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, we love you and we just thank you for your grace and your goodness. We thank you that you have invited us into the journey of discipleship where we learn what it means to become like you and to do what you did.
But Lord, we often skip that first critical step with which the other two are not possible, and that is to learn how to take the vulnerable, shameless position that Mary took at your feet. And Lord, I pray that you, by the power of your Holy Spirit, would break the idol of a distant God. That you would come and break that in our hearts in the name of Jesus. That you would not allow us to believe in a lie, to cover up your beauty and your fatherhood with a narrative of who God is that we do not receive from what you've revealed. And that holds us out of that vital place of abiding in messy prayer. Lord, I pray that you would increase in us a prayerful spirit, not only for our sake or our experience, but because we want that which flowed out of Jesus to flow out of us. So come and stir our hearts in this direction now, Lord, as we worship you and sing to you and name you as our good parent, our Father. We pray this in your name, Jesus. Amen. If you want to come and pray at the altars as we sing, you're welcome. If you need to come and speak vulnerably with God.
If you're at the altar, you feel free to stay in prayer and receive ministry. One of the great mysteries of our faith is this idea that the cross reveals both the fullness of what it means to be human and faithful obedience to God, and it also reveals God to us. And at that key moment on the cross, when we become reconciled to God, when Jesus takes up our humanity in our pain and our shame and brings it back to the Father, he utters a vulnerable, unedited prayer. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And I'd like to think he was living out his own teaching. That that space Jesus occupied he pulled down into our pain and our sin and our shame and our guilt so that we could utter the same unedited prayer through him and be brought back to the Father. You have freedom to speak to him because he loves you. He's with you. And the more we go into the depths of that vulnerability, the more the power and the grace of God will be present and at work in us. So speak to him. As a benediction, I'm gonna read this invitation to Jesus, from, from Jesus, because I believe as you go out in your day-to-day -day life, this is what the spirit of Christ is whispering to you. So receive this invitation as a benediction to go out into your week. Come to me, all who are struggling hard and carrying heavy loads. Come tell me about them, and I will give you rest. Put on my yoke and learn from me. I'm gentle and humble. You'll find rest for yourselves. My yoke is easy to bear. My burden is light. Go in his peace. In Jesus' name, amen.